You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Now let's turn our attention to the message for today. In the weeks leading up to Christmas, we are looking at a part of the Christmas story about the birth of Christ that most people either don't know about or is a part of the story that uh, we tend to forget about. This part of the story takes place 45 days after the birth of Jesus, and it occurs when Mary and Joseph take Uh, Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, and there they encounter two people. They encounter Simeon and Anna. Now, this trip to the temple was a part of the Jewish custom uh, whenever a new child was born. But Jesus, of course, is not just another child. He is God in flesh. But at the time, when Jesus was only 45 days old, no one really recognized this fact at that moment. And the reason is obvious, because Jesus looked like any other 45-day-old baby. He didn't have, you know, a halo glowing over his head like you sometimes you see in kind of the old paintings of Jesus. In fact, this painting done by Rembrandt of this scene where uh, Jesus and Mary and Joseph encounter Simeon, this is a pretty accurate description of what it probably looked like uh, in the day. And and Jesus looks like a, a normal baby of that time. So how did anyone come to recognize the divinity of Jesus Christ? Well, there are really two identifiers that point to this fact. One are the prophecies about Jesus that were fulfilled, and the second are the miracles that surrounded the life of Jesus. Prophecies were the specific details given about the life of Jesus that were put down, recorded, and put down in writing uh, hundreds of years, about 750 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And there were over 300 of these prophecies that had been written down in advance, and were well-known, and were fulfilled by the life of Jesus. We looked at this fact last week. And this, together, all 300-plus of these, they're kind of like a supernatural fingerprint that perfectly matched the details of Jesus' life. The second evidence were the miracles. The miracles that were the supernatural events and actions that surrounded the life of Jesus. For example, like watching Jesus feed a crowd of well over 5,000 from just a lunch brought by a boy. That was something miraculous. Or watching Jesus walk on water, which his disciples saw him do that. Or all of the people that he healed, whether they were lame and they could now walk, or whether they were blind and they could now see. And of course, the biggest miracle was the resurrection, when Jesus, having been crucified on the cross, rose from the grave three days later. These were supernatural events. So the prophecies about the life of Jesus point to his divinity because only God can see beyond time. We can guess about the time, but if we were to make 300 guesses about what would happen 750 years from now, we would be wrong probably every time. So this shows that this is from God. He is the one that gave us these identifiers. And miracles point to God because only God can do what is supernatural. Only God is beyond time, and only God can do what is supernatural. But the fact that Simeon and Anna picked Jesus out of the crowd that must have been filled with, or must have been in the temple that day, the fact that they picked Jesus out that day and identified him as the one the prophecy spoke about was one of the miracles, the early miracles that surrounded the life of Jesus. I mean, on that day, it didn't look like a miracle. It wasn't the feeding of the 5,000. It wasn't walking on water. It wasn't someone who had been blind now being seen. It wasn't an instantly observable miracle because on that day, it could have looked like 
just two old people desperately grabbing at hope and walking up to this baby and declaring him to be the Messiah. But if you follow the life of Jesus, it became clear that they saw in that moment, on that day, something that no one else around them saw. Now, we looked last week at what Simeon saw and what he said, and this week we're going to turn our attention to Anna. This is what we read about her part of the story. It's found in Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. That's a long time to be a widow. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them, speaking of Mary and Joseph, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. So last week, we considered the phrase that was used to describe what Simeon was noticing and had noticed when he saw Jesus, and that is that Jesus was the consolation of Israel, was the phrase that was used. He is the one to console, to answer the sadness and all loss. And now today, Anna says something different. She refers to Jesus as the one who is not only the consolation of Israel, but the redemption of Jerusalem. Now at that time, Jerusalem, the city, was a shell of its former glory. It had been destroyed, and it was only partially rebuilt at this time. And so it was in desperate need of redemption, of being restored. But Jesus didn't come just to console a nation, as it had been mentioned by or about um, Simeon, and he isn't there just to redeem a single city. The history of Israel and its capital, Jerusalem, is really a visual statement of the history of all the cities of the world and the nations of the world, and ultimately all the people of this world. And so the mission of Jesus is to offer consolation, comfort for our sadness, and redemption to every single person. It was the offer to all of us. Now, during its long history, Jerusalem had been destroyed twice. It has been besieged 23 times. It's been attacked 52 times. And it's been captured and recaptured 44 times. It's been a, a city of tremendous conflict. And its location geographically is part of the reason for that. If you visit the city of Jerusalem today and you walk its streets, you will see the evidence of its hard history. The city right now is divided into factions, factions that are often at war with each other. And the signs of conflict are everywhere in the city of Jerusalem. If you've been there, you just you see conflict, evidence of it everywhere. There are ancient walls that are still in rubble condition, stones overturned. Uh, many of the places in the old city, you can see bullet holes in, in the walls of the city. Conflicts that have been erupted over and over again. And Jerusalem, in a sense, is a visual representation of our lives. Like the city of Jerusalem, we have a history of conflict and failure, and we need to be redeemed. So what does it mean to be redeemed? This is the word that Anna used, and this is the word we're going to look at today. Jesus is the Redeemer. What does it mean to be redeemed? Well, Webster defines redemption as to free from captivity by, by payment. And so practically what this means is that if you and I are going to substantially change, 
there is a price that must be paid to free us. Why? Aren't we free? Especially as Americans, we definitely think of ourselves as free. We think that we are free to do as we please. But if you really think about it, we are free only in theory, not in reality. If you watch our lives, you will discover that there is some freedom, but not as much freedom as you'd think we have. For example, are you free to move to New York City? Yes. Sure, there's no laws that will prevent you to move to New York City. You don't have to show your papers to move to New York City. You are free to do that in this country. But what would happen if you actually decided to move from Southern California to New York? Well, if you're really going to do this, not just say you can, but do it, well, you'd have to pay for it. If you own a house here, you'd probably want to sell your house so you can have money to purchase something there. If you're in a lease, you'll need to pay to get out of the lease or break the lease. You'll need to buy a ticket or pay for gas to get from here to there. You'll have to pay to move your stuff. You'll probably have to find a job to replace the one that you've got here. And if you don't have enough money to move to New York City, you won't move to New York City. You'll stay put, even though in theory you could. In theory you're free, but in reality, maybe not as free as you'd like. And then what if you're married or you have kids and they don't want to move to New York City? What if your kids have learned how to surf and they don't surf much there? So they don't want to move. Well, are you willing to pay the emotional price of moving your upset family from Southern California all the way to New York? That's the price you'd have to pay. And what about friendship? What if you've got some good friends here? You know, there's people in New York City you could probably make friends, but it takes time to build friendships. And are you willing to, I mean, you can stay in touch, but it's not the same as living in the same town. So are you willing to pay these prices? The point that I'm making is this. You may feel free, but you're not as free as you think. The reason is that you and I have already made decisions in the past, and those decisions limit our options in the future. The past creates something like debt, future debts and obligations. And so if we want a different life in the future than the one we've paid for in the past, we need to come up with the resources to pay for that different future. We need to be redeemed from the life that we now have. The word redeemed is a compound word. It's made up of two Latin words. It literally means to buy back. The the prefix re is Latin for back, and the root deem is uh, from a Latin word that means to buy or to purchase. So when we buy something or we purchase something, we exchange one thing for another. So if I'm going to the grocery store this afternoon or lunch, I am exchanging money for food. I'm buying something. Back, the prefix, refers to time, refers to history, it refers to the past. So to redeem, then, is to exchange what I have done in the past for something new in the future. Life really is a series of of exchanges. We exchange our time for all kinds of things. This week, many of us will exchange our time for money in the form of our jobs. 
We will invest, for example, time in people. In exchange, we will get friendships with those people. We may be in school, and so we are investing our time and our money in school so that we might get a degree, so that we might exchange that degree for a job or a career, and again, for more money. And these exchanges that we make day after day, they shape our future. And so we're not just passing time. We are exchanging time for a future. So what does all this have to do with Christmas and the statement made by Anna? It's because of that word redemption. The gift that is at the center of what we celebrate on Christmas is the gift of Jesus, which is the offer of redemption, an exchange for our past. Now, why would we need an exchange for our past? Well, it turns out that we have a past that cannot be exchanged for the future that we want. We would love to move on to a better future, but we're like someone who's upside down now in our mortgage. We owe more on our past than it's worth to us. The reason is because of the fact that we have exchanged a lot of our past time to sin. And what we don't realize is that those decisions, those exchanges, were recorded as purchases. And unfortunately, the thing about time is once we've purchased a future, we can't return it if we don't like it. You're buying a lot of things for Christmas that you'll be able to return or the people you're giving it to will be able to return because of a liberal exchange policy. Time is not that way. You can't make a decision today and get a consequence tomorrow that you don't like and say, you know what, I'm going to go back and exchange what I said, what I did in that moment and get a different future. Time doesn't work that way. Time is a non-refundable purchase. It's an exchange that cannot be changed. And that's why we need to be redeemed. We need someone because we can't do it. We can't go back in time. We need someone to go back and pay for the life that we have already purchased. Because we've already created obligations. We've already incurred debt that we can't just walk away from it. it it's attached to us. So just exactly what has our past sin purchased for us in terms of a future? There are two futures that we have all exchanged our past for. We've exchanged our past, decision by decision, for a future of slavery to sin and for a future of death because of sin. This is what we've all exchanged our past for. This is a decision that we've all made. We may not realize the implications of what we purchased, but this is what we have all bought with our time. And so I want to look through both of these this morning so we can get a full understanding of how amazing this gift is that was recognized by Anna and is available for us today. First of all, Jesus can exchange our slavery for freedom, our past of slavery to sin for freedom from sin. In John chapter 8, 31 through 34, <clears throat> we read this. It says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? 
Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, we've probably, you probably have heard the phrase, the truth will set you free, because that's one of the statements of Jesus that's, that's often repeated. It's used in all kinds of contexts, uh, usually about the importance of the truth. And so we tend to hear this as a profound statement. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free, because it is a profound statement. But when Jesus said it, the people that he said it to took it very personally, because the implication was they were not free. And they took exception to that because at this time in history, the Jewish people had negotiated a deal with Rome that allowed them to keep their own laws and their own customs. So even though Rome had conquered them, they still had a great deal of freedom. They had to exchange a lot for that freedom, but they had at least a sense of freedom. So when they say to Jesus, we've never been slaves, it's like, oh, that's not really true. Right now, you're not totally free. You've just made some arrangements to give you the illusion of freedom. But they were very touchy about this. They wanted to keep the illusion that they were free. But, of course, Jesus is not talking about political freedom. He's talking, or he's, he's talking about personal freedom. And he says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's a pretty shocking statement. Whenever we sin, we are exchanging our freedom for slavery. Why? It's because every sin is an act of allegiance. It's not just a moral act. It is that, but it is deeper than that. It is an act of allegiance to someone. We think it's a choice to obey or disobey God, but really it's a decision about whom we are deciding to obey and follow and give our allegiance to. This is what it says about this fact in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin. So it's talking about offering yourself as a slave to someone, and it says this is what we do when we sin. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. It starts out by saying, don't you know this? And the truth is, most people do not know that there is a someone behind every single act of sin. That someone is the one who is behind the very first sin. You can read about it in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. That someone is Satan himself. If you read the story of Adam and Eve eating of the forbidden fruit, you will discover it wasn't their idea. It was Satan's idea. He was the one who suggested it to Eve. Now, he didn't make Eve do it. He didn't make Adam do it. They made their own free decisions, so you can't say the devil made me do it. That's just not true. But he did give you the idea. Eve basically heard what Satan had to say and said, you know, that sounds right. Okay, I'll do that. And since then, Satan has been behind every single sin. Whenever we sin, we assume that we're just thinking and acting on our own. But really what, what is happening is we are listening, not audibly, but we're listening and we're saying, okay, sounds good, I'll do that. And so there's no such thing then as an original sin. What I mean is whenever you sin, 
you didn't come up with that idea all on your own. You had help, whether you realize it or not. The author of every sin, the originator of the idea of the thought behind every sin is the father of lies, Jesus called him, and that is Satan. And he is constantly working at convincing us to obey him, to say yes to him, to give our allegiance to him. And when we do that, there is an attachment that comes with it that we don't often recognize. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, describes it this way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you, and here's the word that's interesting, followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, whenever we sin, it doesn't feel like we're following anyone, does it? It feels like we're just making our own independent decisions. But in reality, we're deciding to follow. What we may be aware that we're following is the ways of this world. We like to think that we're independent, but if you really look at most of the decisions that are made, it's just the set of ideas that are in this world that if you don't agree with them, you are unpopular, and we don't like to be unpopular. We don't like to be left out. We are social creatures. And so kind of unknowingly, but somewhat knowingly, we just take the ideas that our world is saying and we say, okay, we'll agree with that. We'll do that. Because everyone else is doing it and therefore it doesn't feel as bad to us. We're just following the ways of this world. Who came up with the ideas that drive the patterns of thinking and acting that make up the cultures of this world? Who came up with those ideas? Well, in Ephesians it says that was the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Not the final ruler, but the one who rules what's going on here on earth oftentimes. Who's that? That's the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobeying God. Who's that? That's Satan. So Satan is at work in all of our lives because all of us have disobeyed God. Every time we do something that's the opposite of what God has told us to do, we are saying to Satan very personally, Okay, I pledge my allegiance to you. I'll do what you want me to do, not what God wants me to do. And we think that we're just deciding to do it. But the truth is, we're deciding who to obey. We are always obeying and following someone. The only question is who? Is it God or is it the enemy of God? Now, again, for the most part, most people have no idea that they are following when they sin. It seems like their own independent decision. And it is, but they don't understand there's deeper implications to those decisions. And so every time we sin, we are increasing the power of Satan in our lives because anytime you do what someone tells you to do, their influence in your life grows. And so in exchange for our obedience... Satan becomes our master. But we still feel free, don't we? When the truth is, we are slaves. The freedom we feel is an illusion. It's like being given the freedom to pick which prison cell we'd like to live in. It's a choice, but it's not a good choice. It's not a choice that frees us. 
And if you ever really, really try to obey God in an area in your life, you will discover that you are not as free as you thought. Maybe you've decided to follow Jesus Christ and you thought, you know, that thing that I've struggled with, it should be done by now. And you discover it's not. And you're still struggling to obey God. You are discovering, because you've decided you want to shift your allegiance, you're discovering you have an owner. And he's not going to let you go. You have exchanged your past allegiances, and he now owns the patterns of your life. So we are either knowingly following God or unknowingly following the enemy. Those are the only two options in life. There are no Switzerland's. There are no moral Switzerland's. There's no neutrality. Now, sometimes, as I've mentioned, we feel the chains of our slavery, especially if we try to break the chains. But nowadays, most people are just kind of unaware of their conditions of slavery. And the truth that Jesus said that will free us is not truth in general about everything. It's the truth about him that he was referring to. Only Jesus can free us. Now, the other future that we have purchased with our past, sin, is death. You notice that theme mentioned in several verses that I read. So let's look at that. First, Jesus can exchange our slavery for freedom. Secondly, Jesus can exchange, which that's what the word redeem means. He can exchange our death for life. Romans 6, 23 is one of the clear descriptions of this. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So wages are what we get in exchange for work. Death is what we get in exchange for sin. Why? Sin is not just a, a moral mistake. It's not just a moral, whoops, sorry. It is that in part, but it's much deeper than that. It is, at its core, an act of rebellion against God because it's an act of allegiance to Satan. So it's an act of rebellion against God, which is the opposite of obedience to him. And so sin at its core is not a moral decision. At its core, it is a relationship decision. Is it a decision about God? It is an act of separation from God, and therefore it puts distance between us and God. Now, if you do something that causes a, a rift, a separation between you and, an, and a friend, that's sad. But it's not deadly. So why is this rift, why is this separation deadly? It's because God is not just another person. He's not just a friend. It turns out our very existence depends on him. We are as dependent on God as we are the air we breathe. Actually, more than that. And so when we separate ourselves from him, we are separating ourselves not only from the author of our life, but the sustainer of our life. Here's an interesting statement that's made in Colossians Chapter 1, verse 17 in the New Testament. He, speaking of God, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
Now, when this verse was written 2,000 years ago, it sure didn't look like the universe needed to be held together. I mean, did, you look at a rock, does it look like it needs to be held together? Does it look like it's about ready to blow apart? No, it looks very stable. Same thing with you. Do you look like you need to be held together? No. You look pretty stable. But then we started to discover the building block, blocks of the universe in the study of physics. And at a subatomic level, there began to appear to be some mysterious force that was literally holding atoms together. And it was given a name. It was called the Higgs field after Peter Higgs, the one who first proposed its existence 55 years ago. And most physicists since that point agreed that it must exist because without it, the math, the science of subatomic reality, which is all reality, didn't add up. It, it didn't make sense. It, it couldn't work without this mysterious force. But no one had ever seen evidence other than the math for the existence of this force that was holding atoms together, so they couldn't prove it. That is until 2012. That year, scientists working at a super collider in France found evidence of what is called a Higgs boson. That's the particle named after Higgs that carries this mysterious force, and they were able to smash the atoms at a high enough speed where they saw evidence of this mysterious force. And this particle, Higgs boson, is often referred to as the God particle. I don't know if you remember that when that all came out. That was kind of a popular title on some of the news articles. The scientists have discovered the God particle. Now, scientists don't like that term because it's not accurate. They're right. They didn't discover God. What they discovered was what they think is, one, it turns out of many different kinds of particles that carry the force that holds the universe together. So, science has now discovered that it turns out that the universe does need to be held together by some force. Who knew? Until 2012, only the Bible knew. But now, the world at large knows. So I say all this science stuff because to sin then is to separate yourself from the one who is holding the atoms of your body together. That's a problem when you separate yourself from the one that is holding all things together. So an act of sin then is akin to jumping off the end of the pier this afternoon with a weight chained around your ankle. What will that do? That will bring your death. It will cause death, not because God is mean, but because nature is real. It turns out you and I are air breathers. You separate us from air, we don't do very good. We don't live for very long. Now, if you were to do that this afternoon, your death wouldn't be instant the moment you hit the water. Why? Because you can hold your breath. Maybe, maybe for a couple of minutes. But because you need air to breathe, you will not survive very long. And this, is, this analogy points to why when it is that we sin, our death is not instant. Just like if you were to jump off the end of the pier, your death isn't instant. It's eventual. It's not instant. It will occur, but it's in the future. And that's because we cannot survive 
without God forever. Now, some people will live for maybe 100 years before they die. They can really hold their breath a long time. For most people, they don't have that much air in their lungs. Their life is shorter. But there is no avoiding for all of us the consequences of our sin. Once the air of our life runs out, our decision to separate ourselves from God becomes permanent. Because we have exchanged our past, we have traded our life, day by day, decision by decision, for a future apart from God. An eternal separation, an eternal death. But what if we don't want that future? I mean, who would want that future? No one does. Well, it doesn't matter what we want or even think we deserve. Reality always wins. And the reality is that we have exchanged the days of our life for slavery and for death. And slaves can't just say, I don't want to be a slave anymore. Someone needs to break them free. Someone needs to buy their freedom back. People on death row can't just say, you know, I really regret what I did. I'm so sorry. Can I leave now? No. A price must be paid. So Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, it's not just in our past, it's in our present, Christ died for us. That's the gift. He paid the price. The life of Christ given in exchange for our life. Now to most people, let's be honest, this gift sounds somewhat odd. You're, you're giving me death? Your death? Yes. Most people don't value the gift of Christmas because they do not see accurately the reality of their situation. To them, and let's be honest, to most people and often even to us, it looks like we're just good people trying not to hurt people. We're trying to be nicer people. But what we tend not to realize is that in reality we are prisoners on death row with nothing left to trade. No more deals to be made. But you may say, but I don't feel like a prisoner on death row. Okay, I agree. But are you really going to trust your forever on what you feel? Please look at the evidence. Read what God says and consider it. Don't just march into the end of your life on a hunch on a feeling, on what everyone else seems to think. We all need to be redeemed. We need our past slavery exchanged for freedom. We need our past sin exchanged for new life. But who can make that trade? Well, I can't. We sure can't. I can't make that trade for anyone because I'm also a slave on death row. I've got nothing to trade for myself or for you. Only Jesus can make that trade. Only he can redeem our past and exchange it for a better future. This is why back to what we read in Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. That's what we've earned. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the reason we celebrate Christmas. This is why I wanted to go into this this morning. Because when Anna said, this is the Redeemer, this is a word we need to understand. Anna was one of the only few in her time that saw the redemption offer that this child represented. Now, since then, 
many of them, many people have come to see what Anna saw. But you know, just like it was on that day, the vast majority still only see a child of history. And the, quick, the question for all of us is, what do you see? I mean, this is the most important question of our life, is this. Who do you think that child is? Who do you think Jesus is? If you're not sure, your next step is to investigate his life. I mentioned last week, you might want to read through the book of Luke. It begins with the story of Christ's birth, the Christmas story. Read through the entire story. And then I would encourage you to expand and read all four accounts of the life of Jesus in the New Testament. They're called the Gospels, the Good News. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just read those four books and begin to do the investigation. Ask questions. Talk to people that might have answers for you. If you agree with Anna that he is, in fact, the Redeemer, then you have a decision to make. And either you've already made this decision and you have something to remember and be grateful for this Christmas, or you need to make this decision. Accept his offer and follow him. So if you've never done that, if you have questions about that, this is one of those conversations I would say it really can't wait. If it needs to wait, I understand, but I want to give you the option. If you want to have a conversation begun about this, uh, myself and a few of the pastors, we're just going to hang out over here after the service, after the last song. Um, and we have some of our, our wives will be able to join us too. So if you want to talk about this, have some questions about this, uh, we, we want to start that conversation if you're wanting to do that. If you'd prefer, you can just check the box on your connection card that indicates that you want to get some information about this and we'll reach out to you. But this is the gift of Christmas. This is why we pause every year and make a big deal about the birth of Christ. He is the Redeemer. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would open the eyes of everyone in this room to see the situation as it is, their situation. And we know that apart from help from you, none of us would see this about ourselves. So as Jesus said before he left, that he would send the Holy Spirit to bring conviction about sin and righteousness and judgment. I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would bring a spirit of conviction on us, on our neighbors, on this community. That people would feel the reality of their sin and how short they are of their righteousness. And of judgment of the fact that this really is going to matter. Maybe not today, but when life is over, this will be all that matters. So I pray that you would open up the eyes of many this season as they hear Christmas carols, as maybe they come to our Christmas Eve service. And I pray for everyone in this room, God, that you'd bring clarity about where they are and where they need to, what the next step is they need to take in this matter. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.